welcome to the Political Philosophy Podcast. I'm Toby Buckle, and this is episode two of season two, Don't Trust the World to be Right. So the theme for this season is let's not be so sure that what we naturally think, that we're getting it right. And in this episode, we're really going to lean hard into that theme. We're going to be asking... Are your gut feelings about what's right and wrong? What makes you think they're correct? Your moral intuitions, as a philosopher might say, particularly as they concern free will, responsibility, and punishment. So some really interesting, deep, and sometimes dark stuff coming up. My guest today is Professor Greg D. Caruso. He's the Professor of Philosophy at SUNY Corning, and the co-director of the Justice Without Retribution Network. He's the author of a number of books, including Free Will and Consciousness. He's the editor of Neuroexistentialism, Meaning, Morals, and Purpose in the Age of Neuroscience. He's also the author of Science and Religion, Five Questions, and Exploring the Illusion of Free Will and Moral Responsibility. So, as given away in the title and up front, both of us today are going to argue that free will is not only an illusion, but actually quite a dangerous illusion that's reliably leading us to harm others and to cause suffering in the ways that are really quite preventable and gratuitous. That might not be not your opinion coming into this, but I challenge you to listen to the episode and to be open to having your intuitions pushed around a bit. So this is the first of a two-part series. In the first one, we generally outline the argument against free will and against some particular ideas of punishment. In the second, we get into some sticky areas of meta-ethics, and we talk about things like deterrence. And we find a few things to disagree about in the second, but I think we're almost entirely on the same page in the first. If this is a valuable episode to you, just quickly before we get going with it, I've got three suggestions for how you can support the show. So this is a free show. I want it to go out to everyone. But if you do listen to a whole episode and these things can take 20 hours to research, arrange the guest, record, edit, produce, 20, 25 hours each easy, which I love doing, but I do just want to ensure they get out to everyone who's interested. So if you make it through to the end of this episode, I want you to do one of three things for me, whichever's easiest for you. Number one, we have a suggested donation page on Patreon. We suggest two bucks an episode. If you think the episode you're about to listen to is worth a couple of bucks, we'd love to have them. Number two, share on your social media. Pretty basic, just hit that share button, help us get out there to a few more listeners. Number three, tag or forward to a friend, particularly if you work in academic philosophy, which I know a lot of listeners do, and you think, oh, you know, so-and-so would probably be interested in that. Well, please do, please do forward it to so-and-so. So I really hope you enjoy the episode. And if you do, either suggest a donation, share, or tag and forward. Those would be great. And again, big thank you. And I'm genuinely, legitimately grateful for everyone who's been doing any one of those things. You guys are awesome. So, 
without further preamble, it is my pleasure to present to you today Professor Greg D. Caruso. Welcome to the Political Philosophy Podcast. I am joined today by Professor Greg Caruso. Greg, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. So, what are your areas of research? Who are you and what are the things you find most interesting to think about? So, my, my work mainly focuses on issues having to do with free will, moral responsibility, criminal punishment. Um, and I've, and I've done a little work in philosophy of mind and how consciousness relates to these issues of agency and responsibility as well. Um, and I've been primarily focused more recently on the implications of the free will debate on public policy issues having to do with retributive punishment, criminal justice reform, and um, you know aspects of, um, of uh, public policy like public health and safety. Fantastic. So the reason I wanted to have you on the podcast was I saw your TED Talk. Um, Well done. Congratulations on a TED Talk, by the way. (laughs) Thank you. And I remember thinking, and please don't take this the wrong way, but I remember thinking, well, yeah, duh. Like, (laughs) and your TED Talk, just to sum up, I'll link to it, was not only is free will an illusion, but it's actually quite a dangerous illusion that leads us to pursue all sorts of irresponsible social policies that we wouldn't be pursuing without it. And to me, that just seemed completely obvious. And I sort of remember almost writing it off because of that as well. Like, well, yeah, everyone knows that. But then, of course, it occurs to me, not everyone knows that. In fact, the vast majority of people are convinced of the complete opposite. And I think to to their detriment and to society's detriment. So let's start at the beginning, then, of what we mean by free will, because, like a lot of these terms, it can mean any number of things. You made a distinction I thought was quite good between free will as voluntariness or voluntary action and free will as origination. Can you talk us through that? Yeah, so one way to view the concept of free will is in terms of voluntary behavior, which is basically just behavior you you intentionally actions you intentionally engage in that are not coerced or um, are compulsive or constrained in any kind of way. And traditionally in the free will debate, um, the view of compatibilism is one in which says the kind of conception of free will that matters most is this kind of notion of voluntariness. They usually add additional features. So some compatibilists might say, Uh, voluntary actions that are sort of sensitive to reasons responsiveness or actions that the agent um, sort of approves of themselves. So you might have one desire to engage in an act, but you might have a higher order desire that disapproves of your behavior. Like if you're an addict and you're a disapproving addict, you engage in certain actions, but your higher order desires wish you didn't engage in those. Um, So voluntary actions are consistent Um, generally with conceptions of determinism, which say that actions are 
causally determined by antecedent conditions like heredity, laws of nature, chem brain chemistry, etc. The concept of origination usually requires a little bit more that, um, and usually in in the terms of the debate, usually requires the falsity of determinism. So for an action to originate in the agent in a way that grounds free will on this account would be uh, a conception in which um, the agent can't be causally determined by features that extend outside or prior to to the agent. So that in some uh, conceptions of uh, origination um, believe that you have to kind of create your actions ex nihilo out of nothing, um, except, you know, cut off from your antecedent condition. So, i.e., what I choose to have for breakfast um, originates in my own free choices. It's not based in my brain chemistry, my upbringing, my childhood, my socioeconomic conditions, you know, the laws of nature, or things prior to my own existence, like the Big Bang. Well, when you put it that way, it's hard to see how originism would even make sense at all, right? Because you're implying just a rupture in the chain of causality that you, you would have to explain where that came from and what it is, um, right? And right, so, yeah. so some people have claimed that that conception of free will is incoherent, which mm. seems to be your intuition. It's just simply incoherent to... Or at the, very, at the very least, it would require some sort of evidence or explanation, which isn't there yet. Right. So so there are people who attempt to, to make sense of this conception um, that essentially look at features that are kind of um, local to the choice. And so what they'll say is that there could be some sense of indeterminacy that within the agent um, where the agent could still have the kind of control needed to ground uh, free will, and that this is consistent with what we currently know about science. Let's 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 pause and come back to indeterminacy, yeah. but just okay. to try and concretize the distinction we've just made. Yeah. Neither of us is denying that there's a difference between a voluntary action and an action that's compelled. If I go and make a cup of coffee because I've decided that that's what I want to do. Right. That's a voluntary action. Whereas if I make a cup of coffee, I don't know why this would be the case, but because someone puts a gun to my head and says, you've got to make that cup of coffee. Those sure. are obviously very different actions. They feel different. They have different consequences. But that's separate from the question of, am I the ultimate causal agent in that decision? So you can have both actions, but in both cases, me making that cup of coffee is the end result of a string of prior causes or chance or whatever you want to call it going all the way back and at no point does something called me jump in and insert a cause in it right and so this is why i prefer to define free will kind of neutral to these various distinctions that is i try to define free will in terms of the control and action that's needed for a particular kind of moral responsibility i call this basic dessert moral responsibility so basic dessert would mean that the agent is morally responsible in their actions in a sense that would make them truly deserving of praise and blame, punishment and reward, um, and a kind of uh, non-consequential backward-looking sense. So I like this definition because it leaves open which of these other kinds of accounts um, would be needed to make sense of that basic dessert. So compatibilists would say all you really need is 
voluntary control and maybe some additional features of voluntary control. Like I mentioned earlier, reasons, responsiveness, guidance, control, there are different aspects that you might add. Um, and that's all that's needed for basic dessert. Um, incompatibilists would argue that no, um, basic dessert, more responsibility requires more than voluntariness, right? Um, but I want to start with a neutral definition that all parties can agree to. So um, libertarians, compatibilists, free will skeptics could kind of agree that this is what's at stake. This is what's of most you know, philosophical and practical importance in the free will debate. And I want to do that because I think it's an important way to ground the the kind of um, the moral and practical components that matter most to me, things like, you know, in the criminal law, retributive justice requires a conception of basic desert, um, notions of blame and punishment, um, in my view, are tied to concepts of basic desert. Before, so, before we get we, to criminal law, can we just define yeah. some of the terms you've just used for yeah. non-philosophers? I'm not, I'm not sure there are any non-philosophers yeah. who listen to this at this point. It seems to become a, a highly niche thing. But so there's a difference here between what philosophers are talking about when they talk about free will most of the time and what most people are walking around in their heads with. So most people are walking around in their heads with um, an originist, or you called it a libertarian, conception of free will. That no, the things I do really happen because I am a causal agent willing them, right? That's right. not most of the time what philosophers mean. They mean a more truncated notion that the action was voluntary. It wasn't compelled by another. And that's called compatibilism because it's com that idea that you weren't didn't have a gun to your head is compatible with the idea that the universe and all the actions within it are determined, right. whereas the other one isn't. But it does seem like it's changing the goalposts a bit because if a layperson says, well, I believe in free will, meaning a libertarian perception, the philosopher says, yes, absolutely free will, and we can get dessert and whatever out of that. But they're talking about two different things, usually, right? Well, I mean, it, it, it depends, right? Yeah, so the compatibilist would say that, and there's an open question what the folk actually believe. So there's some empirical research that suggests the folk, as you suggest, are libertarian and have this kind of originist. The opinion polls I've seen will yeah. say most people are, but then there's an open question of how they're understanding Right. And there is also some X-Fi or uh, experimental philosophy findings that suggest that maybe the folk are more compatibilist. Um, but if 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 the compatibilists are right, what they would argue is, um, well, what's what even if the folk have these mistaken beliefs about free will, all that's really needed to preserve the things they care about most, which is our interpersonal reactive attitudes, uh, being able to uh, engage in, you know, moral responsibility practices like blame and and praise and shame and resignation and indignation and maybe even in criminal law to engage in certain kinds of practices that appeal to retributive just desserts. All that's needed is that kind of voluntariness conception of free will, even if the folk have this other conception. Um, so. Yeah, just, so just, that's where I think the, the debate should, should kind of be focused is, look, what people, you know, they may have kind of mixed beliefs about free will. They might at times think all that's needed to blame someone is voluntariness. And at other times when they reflect, they might think that, you know, well, what we have is libertarian free will. But what I'm more interested in is the practical question. What, 
what are the kinds of control conditions that would be needed to ground things like resentment, indignation, moral blame, punishment, praise? Um, and by kind of setting things up in that way, it allows us to, to kind of look at the notion independent. Because if you just bake into the cake, well, free will is origination. Um, and then you can say, well, yeah, it's really easy to see we don't have that. And so free will skeptic wins. Um, but if you start with a different, you know, presupposition, all that's needed for free will is voluntariness. Well, it bakes into the cake, you know, pretty good case that we have it. What I like to say is what we need is an account what we're looking for is an account of free will that grounds basic desert. And so I think they stand and fall together. Um, and then the question is, what is really needed for this kind of basic desert moral responsibility? But let me just make a point about like the framing of the debate, though. Yeah. Is it seems like what the compatibilists want to do is they want to take a lot of our intuitions and this is just a feeling I have, let me get your response. They want to take a lot of our intuitions about desert and about punishment and about reward and take them as axiomatic and say, we know we need to punish people. So if originalist free will won't make sense of that intuition, then how do we get back to it? And my point is, well, why on earth... Why on earth is it considered an argument against free will scepticism to say, oh, but your view doesn't give us a, a, an account of punishment? Now, mm -hmm. I think you would want to say you can get to that account of punishment anyway, but that's not an argument. You're just saying, oh, your argument doesn't reach a certain conclusion. Well, yeah, maybe that conclusion's not right in the first place. Does that make sense? Like, yeah, yeah. yeah, I mean, I largely agree with this. So. You know, there's a there's a kind of tradition that comes out of this philosopher P.F. Strawson in the free will literature, um, and he's the one who kind of introduced this language of reactive attitudes. These are kind of just interpersonal attitudes that we engage in in our exchanges with other people, and part of our everyday set of practices are things like resenting you if you do something that harms me or a loved one, indignation, moral blame. And they sort of right, as you put it, they kind of start with this as a as a given, right? So, a we have these reactive attitudes; they're um, they're natural, um, they're essential in a certain kind of sense to our interpersonal interactions. Um, there's different ways to interpret some compatibilists here. Some you know border on the idea that they're um, ineliminable, that we can't kind of get rid of them, and some would argue more um, along the lines that it, if we would, it would have you know, hugely detrimental effects on our interpersonal relations. Um, but you know, part of what I wanna ask is what's the justification for that whole system of interpersonal reactive attitudes? I think a lot of compatibilists, as you put it, sort of start with those as taken and then sort of backwards engineer what's needed for them. And in our everyday practices, they sort of say, all you really need are these kind of normal conceptions of you know, voluntary control. Because what you see in normal exchanges is we do mitigate blame and resentment and indignation in cases where we think the agent was compelled or cases where they may be suffering from brain damage or cases where they don't have normal sort of you know, executive function. But, th but those are the abnormal cases. The normal cases, we hold people accountable. So two, and, points, two yeah. points here is, I think that that view is so, it feels very, I'm trying to find a less patronizing way of saying naive, but if you say, well, we have these gut impulses, 
we're stuck with them, we can't get rid of them, and it would be undesirable to try. Therefore, we have to build social and economic institutions on the basis of them. Just look at something like racism, right? Yeah. Like, like through all sexism would be an even better example. Like through all of human history, it's completely obvious that the fundamental fabric of society is patriarchal and that we have to build on top of that. And if someone came along and said, yeah, but wait, 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 there's, there's actually no rational justification for this whatsoever, and you got a compatibilist response, and they said, but look, wait, 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 your theory means we don't get to patriarchy? That means the theory's wrong. Right, uh-huh. like yeah, yeah, our, yeah. Our, our intuitions about how we treat people, how we appropriate people, how we view ourselves as above, below, deserving of praise and bless—they're not just unreliable; they're reliably bad. They've been wrong about most stuff through most of human history, and the idea that we're taking the ones we have now as axiomatic. Um, John Stuart Mill has the phrase: "You're trusting the world around you to be right," and it just seems weird that we'd say, "Well, we have to end up at punishment." Well, no, in the same way as, like, 300 years ago, you don't have to end up at slavery and patriarchy. Did that make sense? Yeah, no, right. So, I mean, obviously, I'm preaching to the choir here if you share these intuitions. I'm a free will skeptic, by the way. So I think these, you know, reactive attitudes are unjustified, or at least these core ones that have to do with basic desert, resentment, indignation, moral blame. Um, I, You know, in fairness to the compatibilists or the Strassonian, they would probably you know, argue that unlike racism or sexism, these are more basic to human interactions. Um, and, so, you know, some I mean, people like... I mean, sexism isn't basic to human interactions. Well, like people like Manuel Vargas might argue that they're needed to, to build better beings, right? These are sort of needed uh, for moral improvement, moral cultivation. Um, and so without these basic kinds of, you know, interpersonal reactive, you know, relations or attitudes, I should say, um, we jeopardize certain really fundamental, you know, components of, of morality and justice. And but I, I don't agree with that. I, you know, right. I, 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 so I'm a free will skeptic. So I, give me, I give me that, the. I, I can think of one, but can you give me the counterpoint to what you just said? Well, I mean, I, I think it's question begging, um, and uh, to, to a think that. Um, you know, these kind of reactive attitudes are so as universal as some Strassonians make them out to be. So, you know, I'm, I'm slightly concerned that possibly this is a kind of Western biased idea of of a certain set of interpersonal reactive attitudes that we focus on. And and so I don't know if you're aware, so, sort of, for example, in moral psychology, um, there's this growing concern about um, what's called weird um, populations and weird populations mean uh, Western, educated, industrialized, rich, democratic. So psychology has largely made these large claims about you know universal human nature by studying people at Stanford and Harvard and Yale and Oxford and Cambridge, and then we make these universal claims. But the populations that are studied are relatively weird. They're sort of outliers. Um, of, of larger cultural samples. So my concern would be that, and I haven't done any anthropological cross-cultural studies to verify this, but that maybe these Strassonian assumptions are somewhat weird, that they're based on Western industrialized kind of privileged positions of attitudes, and then we take them to be universal and essential. Um, but there are people who have done these looks at, you know, little moral ecologies that develop in different, you know, what I would call moral uh, frameworks that develop in different societies 
um, where the pressures are different, like this philosopher Temler Summers has written about honor cultures that have different kind of frameworks than our individualized That um, is just where I was going to go with yeah, this. Yeah, so yeah. Um, I'm actually going to interview Tamla on that book next oh, week. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. So maybe I should save these thoughts for then. But one yeah. immediately obvious thing about, oh, like attitudes of pr praise and blame are so intrinsic that they can't be removed is to say, well, look, you're looking at those words and yes, you can find those in all of human history but they mean completely different things to the people who are using them. And one obvious case would we would be the locus of responsibility and blame and punishment to us as Westerners would be the individual. To right. most people in all of human history, it would be the group, the tribe, the family, the state, the society. And they would view it as completely normal that yes, if you do something wrong, you get punished. But by you, they mean your community. And by punished, they mean all of you. And that right. would seem to us completely weird, but that you have those com two very different conceptions surely just cuts the legs right from under the, the idea that this is a universal human expression. Mm -hmm. I, also, I also just wonder, the fact that um, we have these kind of reactions or attitudes doesn't in any way justify the react reactive attitudes, right? So I'm a free will skeptic, but I'm not, I, I wouldn't claim to be you know a buddhist monk that if someone were to harm my loved one my daughter or my wife i wouldn't feel some of these reactive attitudes but my view would be that that doesn't necessarily give them any justificatory force um you know my my kind of theoretical commitments would be that these are um irrational reactions to have in a certain sense they might be natural um but it doesn't necessarily provide them with justification so I don't, I don't necessarily, even if the Strasonian were right, that maybe these are evolutionarily hardwired, and maybe even they're more universal than I, you know, than I think they are, that doesn't necessarily sell, settle the philosophical issue for me. Um, so so I, I would distinguish yeah. between, for example, what I call narrow and broad reactive attitudes. So um, na narrow reactive attitudes would be the reaction I have in terms of this kind of maybe interpersonal exchange with someone. Where if I were more, you know, morally wronged, or a loved one were morally harmed or, or wronged, um, I might feel resentment or moral anger, or I might blame the individual. Broader um, reactive attitudes, I would say, are more what you have from a, a more rational, reflective perspective, um, and those are what are more important for, in my view, policy and determining, you know, things like the criminal law. Should it be based in these, you know, reactive or what I call strike back emotions of retribution and desire for, you know, blame and punishment. Um, and even if I can't eradicate, now I'm not saying you can't, but even if I couldn't completely eradicate the, you know, um, reactive attitudes in these interpersonal exchange, I think you can mitigate them, by the way. Um, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they have, they should carry any justificatory power when it comes to basing public policy on these. Um, and my argument would be that retributivism is actually quite um, dangerous, that that reactive attitude, especially when moved from the context of interpersonal relations to uh, institutional punishment, um, ends up being, leads into excessively punitive forms of punishment, inhumane treatment, uh, and, and in my view, um, somewhat responsible for certain uh, phenomena like the mass incarceration problem and some of the inhumane conditions in which we house people in, in prisons. Um, yeah, so there's this 
famous moment, you remember Dukakis, Michael Dukakis, the presidential yeah, candidate, sure. gets asked in the debate yeah, right. against right. the death penalty, and someone says, well, as if it's a knockdown argument, well, what would you want to happen if your wife was raped and murdered? Which, thank you, buddy, for asking that question, you know. Right. <laughs> um, and he sort of... <sighs> isn't very fast on his feet. He just says, like, well, you know, I don't believe in the death penalty, you know, there should be due process. And that just feels like the wrong answer, right? Like, the right answer there is, if someone did that to your wife, I would I would want them to die, and I would want to be the one who did it, right? Mm-hmm. But that that impulse is probably in some sense desirable on an interpersonal level, in that it's difficult to imagine really loving someone and not having that impulse... Right. And that can be true completely separate of the death penalty is just lousy public policy and right. it's racially biased and poorly applied and we kill innocent people all the time. Or from a larger perspective, yeah. individuals don't justly deserve this kind of punishment. Yeah. Right, right. And, and I mean, I think two things can be true at once. One is that I would certainly feel that. And that in some ways it's desirable that I should feel that because it's desirable that I should feel love. And that really is just a, would seem to me to just come along for the ride. And the other is that that person is still not the originator of those actions. Those actions Mm -hmm. might have been voluntary. They might have been, they might have been some sort of like psychopath who wasn't really in control of themselves. You could imagine something where, um, they were actually like them, some philosophical thought experiment where their mind was being controlled by themselves, someone else. But mm. however, and, and how you would treat them would vary on how voluntary it was, because how voluntary it was would tell you how likely they were to do it again. But well, but but that right, wouldn't change right. the fact that the 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 our theories of the universe being determined would be wrong. That wouldn't tell you anything about physics or causality. That's just about how people feel. That's right. right. Yeah. Yeah. And and I, I'll just add um, one thing to that. I would say even on the interpersonal level, though, I think that there are certain kind of replacement attitudes that might work better than resentment, anger, you know, moral anger, uh, um, indignation. So, you know, what on my view, you, you know, or this comes from Dirk Piraboom's work. Um, and he's done, you know, a lot of work on 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 this early on in his first book, Living Without Free Will. Um, you know, sadness or disappointment works in many cases um, just as effectively, and um, and in some in some cases, you know, blame in interpersonal relationships can be corrosive. Um, and so, there, there, I'm not arguing that you can't live that you we could like eradicate the reactive attitudes. In fact. All cultures, all societies, can have you know certain reactive attitudes. Um, it's this. And not all reactive attitudes are problematic for free will skeptics. It's really only a kind of handful of them. And in those cases, I think that you can preserve most of what we care about with kind of very similar, but you know, replacement reactive attitudes. Um, but right, even if we, even if in a personal situation, I slip back into one of these other kind of uh, blame and shame sort of sets that doesn't say anything to me about the fact that that makes them rational or justified. Um, I could still see from the, the broader perspective, at least on my account, um, that they may lack the justification. Um, yeah. So, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, no, go, yeah. Jump um, well, what I was going to say, I've been thinking about this recently, is I think we have, like, primary emotional commitments 
that from a morally consequentialist point of view, it's desirable that we have. So to concretize that, I love my wife. I love yeah. my family. And in some cases, I'm not like most liberals who sort of... I, I feel an emotional connection to my country, which is America now, in a way that is not rational at all. And people have that for religion, they have it for all sorts of things. And if you're just going with a stark utilitarian, happiness is good, suffering is bad, which I think isn't as horrible a starting point as people assume, then it's, it's desirable that we have these things. And you don't get to any of them. You don't love your wife because you thought about it and from first principles you created an argument, this is what you should do. Right. You just find yourself in that position. Now what's incumbent on us then is to just work backwards from those, to think, am any of the things I'm doing because of those emotional commitments incompatible with right. what you get from ethics, from first principles? So to take the case of loving your country, I think you can love your country that's not incompatible, but you can't make false claims. You can't say America never enslaved people because you love your country. And in the same way, I can say I love my wife and I would be very angry at someone who hurt her. That's just an emotional truth. But what I can't say on the basis of that truth is that person is the ultimate causal agent of their actions. Did that all make sense? Yeah, would you say that person deserves your anger or deserves your blame or your punishment? Um, so then we get into two questions of what it means to deserve something. So I think actually, like you say, it is interpersonally useful to let's take a much lower case than someone kills my wife. I remember um, when I was a teenager, me and a friend of mine just got really badly beaten up by like a group of like 20 something year old men who are all bigger than us and we're like 16 and without provocation, right? And I remember just thinking very retributively, like, if in mm. order to stop this, we just need to start shooting people who do that, then that's mm. jolly well what we should do, right? But actually, like, revisiting that incident now with a bit of age and maturity, do I think they deserve punishment? Well, not really in the same way anymore. Not in the sense of that I think they're evil people or my need for, like, punishing them has anything even to do with their psychology. I think there has to be consequences to behaviour like that, and there has to be consequences because that really sucked, and I don't want them to do it to someone else. Right. But that's, that's a very different sense of responsibility and blame. I'm just saying that it would be better consequentially if something happened to intervene to stop them doing that. But then when I e reflect on that scenario further, I realize that what tends to happen when people do that actually makes them worse. Like there's every evidence in the world that a certain type of man from the ages of 16 to 25 will start fights and they will stop doing it at a certain age mm -hmm. unless they ever interact with the criminal justice system and then they'll do it forever. So actually, when I really think about it now, what do I want for them? I would want to hold them accountable in some sense that they understand. Like, I was actually got off okay. My friend was really badly hurt. I would want them to see that and feel that as just an emotional thing that isn't rationally justified. I would want them to understand the consequences of their action. And I would want some intervention to try and stop them doing it again. Which, like I say, the criminal justice system seems to be the worst option on the table. Right, right. I wouldn't want... I think any more to like, I think at the time, if I could have had them killed, I would have done. I wouldn't want that anymore. And I think that is partly 
having thought about ultimate culpability. And I think mm-hmm. it does help you in your interpersonal reactions. I no longer hate people like that. And I think you only get hate from like this sense that they're the originator of the action. I'll pause that. Yeah, right. So um, yeah, I'll just you know lay my, my view on the table and, and sort of build on that. I mean, so, so again, I'm a free will skeptic, which maintains that you know who we are and what we do is ultimately the result of factors beyond our control. And that could be determinism, chance, luck. And because of that, we're never truly deserving of praise and blame in this basic dessert sense. But that doesn't mean there aren't other conceptions of responsibility, and you appeal to some of them in there, um, that are inconsistent with free will skepticism. And it's not also to say that, you know, sanctions may still be justified uh, for various reasons. Um, it's just to say that, um, you know, to 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 to. Uh, hold someone accountable in this basic dessert sense for conditions that are ultimately beyond their control, be unfair and unjust, at least on my view. Um, and so there are totally good reasons to engage in certain kinds of interventions and obviously uh, forward-looking accounts of punishment, I would argue, are consistent with free will skepticism. So if you, you know, if you look at accounts of punishment, you could say that, you know, break it into two broad categories to begin with. There are these sort of backward-looking accounts. Um, so, you know, why punish an individual? Well, because they deserve it. That's backward-looking. Um, and that's associated with what's called retributive punishment, retribution. Um, they deserve to, push it, to be punished because they justly deserve it. They did it freely. They're morally accountable. They need to be given their just deserts. You might also say someone should be punished because um, it'll make us safer. It'll deter crime. Um, and those are what are called forward-looking reasons. Um, those are totally consistent with free will skepticism. Um, now, I have some beef with certain forward-looking accounts, um, and my own preferred model for for uh, criminal punishment or addressing criminal behavior is something I call the public health quarantine model. Um, and I don't know, maybe we could get into that. Why, but, don't you, why don't you talk us through this? Because the way I see it, there's three... There's probably more than three, but there's three big justifications people give for punishment. One is retribution, and I think we can rule that out out the gate as not making sense conceptually, even if it's something we feel emotionally. The other two... Well, that's a very friendly podcast to be on. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Because that, that's the conception that still is primarily the one that drives the criminal justice system, especially in the and U.S. Explicitly, um, it's, it's written into the American Constitution that we're basing the criminal justice system on the idea of free will. It's explicit. Um, well, yeah, I mean, the, 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 the model penal code was recently revised, and in their purposes section, where they lay out the purposes for punishment, double down on retributivism as the kind of foundational justification. Again, one thing I want to stress is you go back to the writing of the Constitution, slaves are three-fifths of a person, and that's not just a legal code. It's if you said to someone, do you do you not realize this some person is your full equal as a human being and everything you're doing is grotesquely morally wrong? You'd get something a bit like what the compatibilist would say. And Jefferson, at his worst, sounds like a compatibilist. He says, well, yes, intellectually, you're right. You, It's difficult. Carlyle, Carlyle says this. He says, okay. yes, it's really difficult. It's where, you know the phrase, the dismal science of, mm-hmm. of economics? It's where this comes from. Is he, Carlyle says to th- these economists who are saying, but like, economically, utilitarian-wise, 
Slavery just doesn't make any sense. And he says, well, that's why it's the dismal science. You don't understand the primary emotional commitment that we have to this way of life. And yet I completely understand that slavery doesn't make sense in, um, in uh, economic terms or rational terms or like utilitarian terms. Well, but, this is just, yeah, but this is just how people feel about the world. And any conclusion, that do, any thought process that doesn't get you there has erred because you don't get to that conclusion. And it feels like we're in that case with the idea of punishment. In that if you say punishment doesn't make sense, people say, oh, but then how do you justify punishment? Mm-hmm. And it's like, well, if you said slavery doesn't make sense, and people say, oh, but then how do you justify slavery? Well, maybe maybe the answer is just that you don't, right? And that, that there's other forms of punishment that you can get to, but but would be quite distinct, which we should get, get to, but... Mm-hmm. Yeah, maybe our primary emotional commitments are wrong. Most of the commitments we see people having throughout human history, we now view as wrong. Would it not be weird if at our specific time and place and culture, we've just got it right? Would that not be an even more bizarre conclusion? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, yeah. So, I'll just say, my account... Um, I wouldn't even call my account punishment. I'm, I'm, I'm leaning nowadays towards viewing my account as a kind of non-punitive account. Could you, could you do the quarantine? Um, yeah, theory? yeah. So, so this starts with work by Dirk Pirboom, so I got to give credit to him, right? Mm. So he first proposed this idea that, um, let's just say I, I just recently came back from Beirut from a conference. And let's say while I was over there, I contracted some communicable disease and I get on the plane and I get off at JFK. Um, I have Ebola or something. Um, now I haven't done anything that um, that I you know deserve punishment for. I didn't acquire this freely. I'm not morally responsible for having contracted the Ebola. Um, I don't justly deserve um, to have my liberty taken away. I don't need to be given my just desserts. Retributivism doesn't seem warranted in this case. Nonetheless, almost all of us would say that we're justified in quarantining this individual. Um, and the justification for quarantining him in this particular case would be you know, protection of safety for uh, society. That is, it's based on a right of self-defense and protection of harm to others, which is a very well-grounded, wide, wide, I think, spread intuition people have that we would be justified in quarantining this individual, restricting their liberty um, for, on grounds that have nothing to do with retribution, just desserts, free will, or more responsibility. Um, so what we would argue is that. Um, a similar justification could be given for incapacitation of seriously dangerous criminals, right? So a serial killer might need to be incapacitated, even if he's not morally responsible in the basic dessert sense, maybe because no one is, right? But um, we still have the grounds for justifying him, and it's it's based in this, you know, right of self-defense and protection of harm to others that's analogous to the justification for quarantine. Now, if we adopt that thinking, though, it entails a number of major reforms. So, for example, um, you know, we don't quarantine people for the common cold, right? If you sneeze on someone and you're sick, you do present a risk uh, of harm to others. But we deem a certain amount of of risk as acceptable um, within society. And we restrict quarantine to really precise, really um, prescribed circumstances, right, for these really severe kind of cases. Um, I would say this we have to also, in the criminal justice case, consider the reasons why we incarcerate people for the terms that the length of period that we incarcerate them for um 
And in many of the re- many of the, the the situations where we currently use incarceration, I would argue that we shouldn't use incarceration. That alternative methods are 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 more desirable in these in those cases. But there will be these restricted cases, like you know communicable diseases, where maybe incapacitation is the only option. Second of all, um, and this is why I would say it's not punishment. Um, depending on how you define punishment. So maybe you define punishment and this meets that definition. But um, just like when you quarantine me, you have a moral duty to not just take away my liberty, but to treat me for the disease, right? And then the minute I'm no longer a threat um, to society or public health, you have to release me. You can't hold me a moment longer than is than is justified, right? So if you cure me of the Ebola, there's no longer any grounds for quarantining me, let's say. So on my model, the the individuals that we do incapacitate would retain and should retain all their basic rights, all of their human dignity and worth. Um, You can't justify treating them cruelly. You can't justify practices that have the intent to cause harm or deprivation, which I would say is part of the definition of punishment, that the state, when it's doling out punishment, intends uh, to exert some kind of harsh treatment on an individual. Um, I would say there's a secondary, there's a difference between intent and foreseeable consequence, I think. And so, yes, I limit your liberty um, when I quarantine you, but the intent is not to harm you, right? The intent is is to protect public health. So I would say when we incapacitate individuals, um, the purpose of the criminal justice system should be rehabilitation and reintegration. and that the well-being of the of the criminal has to be taken into account. Uh, my personal view, you should lose no rights other than your liberty. So I think I think prisoners should retain uh, the right to vote. Um, they should retain all their other civil rights um, or civilian rights. Um, I don't think that we should we could justify treatments like solitary confinement or the death penalty on my account. Um, and lastly, you know, if we do have to incapacitate someone indefinitely, let's say they can't, they continue to be a severe threat to, to society, um, you, there's no grounds for, for just to, to treating them more cruelly than is necessary to protect public health and safety. Now, let me just add a little wrinkle to that if I can. I would say that what I add to this model is what I call the public health component. So I place this quarantine analogy within a larger public health framework. So if you think of public health institutions like the CDC, the EPA, the Food and Drug Administration, um, um, they're primarily preventative. They're controlled with preventing foodborne illnesses, preventing contamination of air and soil. The primary mission statement is preventative. Um, The CDC only uses quarantine after it's failed in its mission statement, right? its goal is to prevent pandemics, to prevent uh, outbreaks of disease. So I would argue that the criminal justice system should be reoriented toward prioritizing prevention and social justice. Um, So real public health institutions, for example, obviously are geared at preventing bad health outcomes, but they're also social justice institutions. Because um, if you look at public health, when you say globally, right, we look at life expectancies in third world nations, infant mortality rates, um, obesity rates, rates of heart disease. We look at in countries, um, women's rights, uh, prejudices, uh, sexism, 
affects, you know, women's rights. It might affect health outcomes of women, but it might also affect, you know, infant mortality rates and life expectancies. We look at dietary concerns, nutritional uh, um issues, you know, uh, how economic inequality might affect ability to have healthy diets. And so public health institutions in the, in the aim of achieving public health um, and, and producing better health outcomes basically have to prioritize and address social inequalities. What I would argue is we can't successfully address criminal behavior without simultaneously addressing um, social justice. And that means that criminal justice and social justice become much closer to, they, 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 you have to deal with them simultaneously, especially if you hold a view like myself, which is individuals end up in the places they end up because there are social determinants of poor health and there are social determinants of criminal behavior. And these include, and I've done work on this, um, these include things like low socioeconomic status. It's shown that low, what's called low SES, socioeconomic status and social psychology, um, affects poor health outcomes, has an, has, uh, has an impact on, mor uh, on morbid morbidity rates and heart disease and everything else, but it also has uh, impact on incarceration rates. We know 90% of women in prison have been domestically abused. Right. So we know there's a direct connection between social conditions uh, that are happening in the home and in, 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 you know, in communities that affect uh, outcomes. So the, the goal of the criminal justice system, in my view, should be then to reorient itself toward prevention and addressing these social inequalities so as to prevent criminal behavior in the first place. Of course, on the tail end, you might always end up, nonetheless, with you know a serial killer or child molester, and that's where you have to appeal to my my justification for incapacitation. But I would like to use it as infrequently as possible, um, and I'm not naive enough to think that we could totally eradicate the need for incapacitation. But the goal should be uh, not to build more prisons and punish people on the tail end, but to prevent the circumstances that lead to criminal behavior in the first place number of thoughts there and i'm just going to give them to you in reverse order and then just you know respond to whichever one or one seem interesting to you on the prevention one this is more of just an aside but you can't help feeling um frustrated by the regularity of it so if you look at the people who end up on death row it is the same bloody biography every single time you've got someone who was usually black poor abused as a child, usually single-parent home, usually interactions with the criminal justice system at a young age, usually some sort of additional trauma after that, usually poor socialization, usually lower IQ, usually unemployed for a long period of time. That is the biography of 85% of the people on death row. And you've got to wonder, well, if we know with regularity what's leading people to death row, Surely there's just, like, a consequentialist. Like, even without caring about that person, even if all you cared about was stopping murders, there'd be a case for trying to remove some of those social conditions. The other thoughts I have... Look, I jump in there for yeah, yeah, one second. This is where I think, um, you know, you mentioned my TED Talk. This is where I think um, commitment to the belief in free will manifests itself in a kind of harmful way in public policy, because you can even think of it on a grand macro level scale, like politics. You mentioned Dukakis before, but I'll take a different case. If you remember President uh, Barack Obama gave this speech in front of uh, successful 
uh, business. Um, and he said, look, you know, if you succeeded in business, you didn't build that yourself, right? Mm. Um, you somewhere along the line, and you had a, and a supportive teacher. And the Republicans and conservatives went crazy. Um, and they ran their whole um, convention that year. The Republican National Convention was based on the slogan, yes, we did. Like, yes, we did. We we built it ourselves. So there's this really deep-seated kind of um, individualism in the United States that's kind of wedded to this commitment of, you know, pulling yourself up from the bootstraps. But it also relates to this idea of individual responsibility and achievement, but also individual blame. So my achievements should be attributable only to me as an individual, but also when someone ends up in the criminal justice system or poverty, um, it's their fault. It's their fault. So there's a kind of blind, there's a blind, you, you get blinded to these social determinants when you look too heavily on the, from the perspective of individual responsibility. Another way of putting that thought is yeah. let's start by drawing a circle which just excludes the things that no sane person could think someone controls. So you can't control who your parents are. Right. Also follows from that, you can't control what your genetics are. Okay, that's off the table. Um, you can't control where and when you're born. That's off the table. But surely within that you can have some choice. Okay, well, let's just go through the list. You can't yeah. control your race, your gender, any of your demographics. No, right. You're born no into sense. a household, you can't control whether it's a single person. No you know, sensible household. person can argue that you control that. You can't control your early socialization. You can't mm. control the language that you learned. You can't mm. control where you went to school. Oh, yeah, but you can still control what you want to do with it. But even something like being a good decision maker or the capacity for hard work, that is going to be a function of all those other prior Causes. Exactly. Right. And so we even know, for example, that poverty or low socioeconomic status has been shown to affect brain development. Um, and, and people will say, oh, but look at this one person who had everything going wrong for them but still pulled it out. That's great. But the reasons they pulled it out are because the world is really freaking complex. And when we're saying poverty leads to this we mean on average or on aggregate there's going to be oh, right, outliers right, right. Right? right and those outliers are no more proof of an originalist conception of free will that's just to say there's such a thing as a probability distribution right and the characteristic traits that led them to be more successful overcome themselves those character you know traits were themselves causally determined by these other antecedent social and environmental factors yeah Thank you for listening to the Political Philosophy Podcast. As mentioned at the beginning, if you enjoyed this episode, there's a few different ways you can support the show. You can do the suggested donation, or indeed, any donation is good. Shares, forwards, tagging friends. That's always much appreciated, and again, a big thank you to everyone who's already done that. So consider any one of those things the fee for the show. Next week will be the second part of my conversation with Greg. We'll be covering similar issues and also talking about deterrence, executions, um, some of the meta-ethical issues that underpin this debate. So 
if you want to make sure that you get that and stay up to date with the show generally, you can follow us on Facebook or Twitter, and you can subscribe a whole bunch of different ways. You can subscribe on iTunes, SoundCloud, RSS feed, we even have a YouTube page. So, whatever floats your boat, really. Um, and uh, links to all of that are on the website, politicalphilosophypodcast.com, politicalphilosophypodcast.com. So, please check it out, subscribe, and follow. Apart from that, thank you for listening to the show. Thank you for anyone who shares, donates, or forwards. And I hope you'll join us again next week. Bye.